Well, I'd like to welcome you to week number three of online church, um, being quarantined to our houses and being asked not to go anywhere. It's been interesting to listen to different people talk about uh, how they're doing. All the extroverts, they're dying. They're they're just going crazy because they can't be around people and they're depressed and all that sort of thing. And the introverts are, they're just shaking their heads saying, yes, this is, this is what I'm uh, really loving about life. And um, I heard somebody say, you realize that all the extroverts are now understanding what us introverts are going through when they drag us everywhere to all these different activities and things like that. So anyway, Different people are doing uh, different ways, and I hope that you're doing well this morning. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse number 9 in just a moment, but um, just want to uh, ask this question that we're going to be asking later on. The question is, what makes us different during this pandemic? What makes us different during this coronavirus outbreak? What makes a Christian different from a lost person? I want to begin by reading a verse of scripture, 1 Peter 2, 9, that says this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You may not have thought of yourself this way, But if you are a child of God, you are royalty. You are a chosen people. You are a a priesthood. You are set aside as God's possession. You may never have thought of yourself that way. And the reason that is important is that we are set aside for a specific purpose. That purpose is to declare or to proclaim the excellencies of God. There is not a greater mission in all the world. Think of it, this infinite, eternal God, the one who is, has created all things. He's, he's somebody who is majesty, is, is incomprehensible. His excellence in his glory with a multitude of angels all around him. This is the God who says to you and to me, your mission is to declare my excellencies. This is the God who says to take all the armies of all the nations in the world and they're like dust on the scale. In other words, all these nations and all their might, they don't even move the scales of the power of God. He says that all of the people of the world, they're like grasshoppers to him. They're they're nothing to God. This is the God who is is, uh, splendorous in in his infinite wisdom. He's the one who put the innumerable stars into the sky and calls them by name and said this, not one of them are missing. He's the God who uh, loves the great reversals. He, he makes the, 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 the lowly to be full and the, the poor to be full, and he makes the rich to, to go hungry. He's the God who raises some kings up 
and throws others down. We can't question his wisdom or, or his discretion. And on top of all that, he saves. This is the God with all of this power, with all this glory and might. This God saves, not by our wisdom, not by our smooth delivery, not by some persuasive argument that we give. He doesn't twist arms. He doesn't do some miraculous deed in order to save. No, he does it by proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you realize that we don't have to prove the gospel? Do you realize that we don't have to uh, uh, proclaim the logic of the gospel? We simply proclaim to people there is a God who sent his son, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life, who died on the cross for your sins, rose again the third day, and now is in heaven. And he did this so that you might be saved. That's the proclamation of the gospel that we're called to. And it is that simple proclamation that saves. We're just his messengers. He is the one who, who opens the ears to hear. He's the one who enlightens the mind. He's the one who sends the messenger. And it is he who seals. His kingdom is spreading silently like leaven throughout bread. And his influence is felt all over the world. His, his, his kingdom is, is spread and is, I'm sorry, his kingdom is, is populated by lowly people. Not many of us are mighty. Not many of us are noble. He's taken the, the foolish things of the world and that's his kingdom. Those kind of people and the influence of his kingdom people will be felt for all of eternity because of his glory and his majesty, because we are part of God's royal family. That's the kind of God that we serve. You are a, a royal priesthood. You are a chosen race. You are a, a royalty. You are children of God. Do you remember what that verse said our mission was? That verse said that our mission is to declare the excellencies of God. In light of this grand and glorious mission, it brings a, a different light on Jesus' words when in Matthew 6, uh, 31 and 32, he says this, therefore do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For all the Gentiles seek after these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them all. You realize what Jesus is saying when you think about what our mission is? He's saying you are children of the king, therefore anxiety does not befit you. I was thinking about this week and uh, popped up in the news about Prince Charles. I'm sure most everybody's heard about him. But um, could you imagine Prince Charles, the heir to the throne of the royal family, being worried about his next meal? or being worried about food, his clothing, that, that would be preposterous. That would be ridiculous. And yet, we are children of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so it's just as preposterous, even more so, that we 
should worry about such things as that. Because we are children of the King, this awesome, this powerful God, God knows all of our needs. Therefore, we don't have to have anxiety about earthly things. We don't uh, have to be preoccupied with uh, making ends meet. We don't have to be preoccupied with the dangers of the coronavirus. We don't have to be preoccupied with the things that everyone else is preoccupied with. Why? Because those things are beneath us, dear child of God. They're totally beneath us. These are not things that we should even worry about because God said, look, you have this mission. You're glorifying me. I'll provide all this other stuff. Don't even, you don't even have to worry or have anxiety about it. God's gonna take care of it. And so again, let me say, the question I wanna answer is this. During the coronavirus pandemic, what makes a believer different from an unbeliever? What makes us different? If you and I are tasked with a mission that is greater than even the world itself, then shouldn't there be a distinct difference in how our lives are lived during the pandemic? How does, so we can ask this question, how does our thinking affect our, our mission? Or how does our mission affect our thinking? How does it affect our actions? How does it affect, how does our mission affect the way that we spend our time? There, there, there's another question that I was thinking about this week uh, when it comes to our mission. And think with me about this. Can we go back into scripture and see where there was any kind of people that was saved through tremendous power and was asked by God to be different from the rest of the world? And the answer is yes, all of you are thinking of it. That is the children of Israel in the Exodus. The book of Exodus, if you remember, it starts out the children of Israel are in slavery to the Egyptians. God sent Moses to, to proclaim liberty. He, he delivered the Israelites through great acts of power, the plagues. He fought all the gods of Egypt. And then he parted the Red Sea and they went through the Red Sea and went into the Sinai wilderness and ended up at Mount Sinai. And it was at Mount Sinai that he began to introduce his covenant to his people. And in Exodus chapter 19, verse number five and six, he introduces the Ten Commandments this way. He says, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be my kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And so the way that God introduces the Ten Commandments, his covenant with the children of Israel, is to remind them that he has saved them and they are his special people. And now there's a covenant called the Ten, we call the Ten Commandments that they're going to have with this God. Now let's jump for just a minute to the New Testament. And, and remember this, do you remember how Jesus summarized the Ten Commandments. This rich young ruler, he came to Jesus, said, what's the greatest commandment? And of course, um, Jesus said, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second is likened to it, love your neighbors yourself. The first command covers the first half of the Ten Commandments. The second command uh, covers the second half of the Ten Commandments. 
That, that's his summary. Love God with all your heart, soul, and might and love your neighbors yourself. And that is it. That is it. That is how we believers in the midst of this pandemic distinguish ourselves from unbelievers during this time. How I distinguish myself from a neighbor who does not know God is by loving God with all my heart, soul, and might and loving my neighbor as myself. And so let's just cover what that looks like. First of all, how do I love God with all of my heart, soul, and mind? How do I love God like that? Well, when you go back to the Ten Commandments, I want you to think about something. By the way, if you're at home, you want to turn there. That's Exodus chapter number 20, the Ten Commandments. And he, God introduces it this way. He says, basically, I'm going to paraphrase, I am the God that saved you and brought you out of Egypt. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me, and you will not make idols. And so the first application of how to love God with all your heart, soul, and might is to not make idols. Now, when we think about idols, we normally think about primitive people and those idols of metal and wood that they would set up on their mantle and worship. But that's not necessarily true because idolatry is the universal condition of the human heart. As a matter of fact, John Calvin said that our heart is an idol factory. Our hearts are always coming with something from which we can derive our worth or our identity or our joy and even our hope. That, that's, that's what an idol is. And so we can sit back and identify our idols by asking some questions such as this. What is it that consumes my heart? Whatever it is that most delights my heart and stirs my affections and desires, whatever it is that I spend my thoughts on, or whatever it is that I trust in, or whatever it is that consumes me, that is the direction of the idol that my heart is producing. And so ask yourself that question. What is consuming you? What is, what is driving your desires? What, is, what, is you, what are you spending your time on? God says, don't make anything, whether it is good or whether it is evil, into an idol. Don't give ultimate value to anything apart from God. And that's our struggle. The universal human struggle is to not put anything in the place of God, to not make something ultimate value that's not God. So, dear believer, dear Providence Bible Church family, you have a golden opportunity during this pause to sit back and ask, what is the desire of my heart? What is on the throne of my heart? And when we think about that from an applicational standpoint, the idols of our culture are easy to identify, aren't they? The idols of our culture are, are money. Money drives our culture. Most people probably put their hopes in money in one way or another. Our self-worth is wrapped around how much money we make or how much money we have. Um, uh, losing a job 
is, is something, and, and that loss of income is something that can bother many people. We, we rank ourselves according to how much more or less money we make than somebody else. Um, but if you're anxious during this time, when you, when you lose your job or have the potential to lose your job, if you're anxious and your anxiety may be pointing you to a manifestation of your idol, didn't God say that he would take care of you? Nowhere in scripture does it say, I will take care of you unless you lose your job. It doesn't say that anywhere. Another one of the idols of our culture is entertainment, isn't it? That's a big idol in our culture. People are entertaining themselves into numbness. When Netflix and YouTube and the other streaming services are asked to throttle back their feed because they're breaking the internet, that tells you a whole lot about our culture. Um, alcohol cells are at a record. People are completely disengaging from the world around them. For the Christian, that entertainment idol is even more serious because it doesn't just disengage us from the world around us. For the Christian, when we give in to the idol of entertainment and we just numb our brain to, to binge watching series after series after series or YouTube video after YouTube video after YouTube video, it disengages us from eternity. It, it disengages us from the most real thing there is, that is the spiritual reality of God and, and our mandate from him. Body and health are big idols. I was in Walmart uh, the other day and I was picking up uh, soap of all things. I was on the soap aisle and I, I watched out of the corner of my eye as this woman turned into the aisle and saw me standing there and went, oh, and turned around and went right back around. She wasn't going to even get close to that six foot barrier that everybody's talking about. People are really afraid for their health. And maybe some people's idols are, are their body image. And the gym rats are thinking to themselves, I, I don't know what I'm going to do. I can't go to the beach after this is done because I'm not going to have my beach body or whatever else. Our idols are everywhere. Our, our body image, our health, and, and that sort of thing. The Bible tells us to keep ourselves from idols. Honor the God who saved us and to show the excellencies of God. So one way that we can love God with all of our heart, soul, and might is to um, keep ourselves from idol. Number two, we can also dive into scripture. The second way that we can love God with our heart is by spending time in scripture. I would say that for the majority, this really is a pause. I, I don't think I've talked to anybody who said that they are more busy because of the pause than less. And I, I know they're out there, but I haven't met them. For the vast majority of people, things are slower. Social calendars are, are wiped completely clean, uh, all social engagements and, and all that sort of thing. What better way to love God than to spend a little of that extra time that you have more, more in his word? Are you planning to have more time in scripture? Do you realize what God said about scripture? Jesus said this. He said, the words I've spoken to you are spirit and life. Jesus is the word. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Jesus is the word. 
To be in the word is to be in, at the feet of Jesus. It's uh, all of scripture from beginning to end reveals Jesus. And when we spend time in it, it takes our affections and it turns them heavenward and it turns them towards Jesus Christ. And, and instead of numbing ourselves with uh, endless entertainment, why don't we quicken our hearts and quicken our spirits by spending time in God's word and worshiping him in his word. And then the third way that we can love God with all of our heart is to spend time in prayer. I'm always amazed when I read the gospels. Currently, my New Testament reading is in the gospel of Luke. And over and over in the gospel of Luke, we find that Jesus is going off by himself to pray. He began his ministry by spending 40 days and nights out in the wilderness praying. He, every time there was a critical point in his ministry, he spent time in prayer all the way until the Garden of Gethsemane. Now think about this for just a minute with me, will you? This is God. This is a second person of the Trinity. He didn't need to pray, but he wanted to commune with the Father. It was that important to him. How much more important is it for sinful human beings like you and I Weak human beings like you and I, we don't have infinite wisdom and infinite power. How much more important is it for us to spend time communing with God in prayer? Have you decided that you're gonna love God by taking a little bit more of your time in prayer with him? We are sons and daughters of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and we can talk to him at any time. I would imagine that given a chance, almost everybody in the world or everybody in the United States, let's just use the United States, would love to go talk to the president and give him advice about coronavirus or just get advice from him. Uh, what do you see happening and, and those sort of things. And yet we have this grand privilege of going to the King of Kings, the God of the universe and talking to him at any time, day or night. And so one of the ways that we are distinguished from unbelievers is that we love God with all of our heart. But there's a second way that we distinguish ourselves from our neighbors, and that is that we love our neighbors as ourself. Love your neighbor as yourself, that's what Jesus said. Well, what does this look like? In one sense, you could say it's very hard because we're all supposed to stay in our houses, right? A uh, funny thing happened um, to me this last week. I, I usually have coffee in my office, but I forgot coffee. So I went out to a coffee shop and I'm, I'm ordering. And of course, all orders are takeout. And there's a police officer sitting by the wall. I'm not sure what made him the exception, but he was. And he was sitting there and two girls walked into a local coffee shop with Starbucks mugs where they just gotten their Starbucks coffee and said, hey, can we come in here and sit? And the woman just looked at them like they were just completely irrational. We can't be around each other right now. Plus, I don't want you in the store with a Starbucks mug was a look on her face. But uh, she said that after they left and not to their faces. But anyway, uh, it's really hard to spend time with people and show ways that we love our neighbor face to face when we can't see one another close up. But there, there are a couple ways. First of all, we can pray for one another, can't we? Over and over and over again in Paul's letters, Paul begins his letter in prayer, and then he'll explain something about the gospel, take a big section of theology, 
And then in his transition somewhere, when he's making application in the second half of his letters, almost always Paul will say something about praying for one another. And so we can spend time praying for one another. We can get on the phone. We can ask each other how they're doing. Uh, people who are struggling, we can pray for all those introverts, all those extroverts we can pray for right now because they're dying and they need help and they need our prayers. But there's another thing that we can do. And I think this might be a little bit more applicable to when we get back together. And that is we can refrain from judging one another. What do I mean by that? Well, there are many different opinions as to how we're supposed to be acting right now. Everybody has a theory. And of course, if you're like me, none of anybody else's theory is as good as mine. Mine's the best one there is. But the range of attitudes is remarkable. Some believers think this whole thing is overblown. They, they think we ought to be meeting together and that we're just acting like a bunch of wimps, like a, 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 a bunch of sissies or a bunch of clowns or whatever else you may say. Then there are others who are honestly believe that if we get together as a church or as a small group within the church, that we are not loving our brothers and sisters because we're just completely disregarding their personal safety. The, the range of opinions and, and the range of beliefs about this is astounding. And so we haven't really dealt with anything like this before, have we? The last time churches were asked not to meet was during the 1918 uh, H1N1 flu uh, pandemic. And th there, so there hasn't been anything like this in our lifetime. But because no one's exactly sure what to do, uh, one of the things that we, have to, we need to make sure that we don't do is to judge. We don't need to judge and say, that person's overreacting or that person's not taking it seriously enough. In Romans 14, Paul instructs the Romans not to judge one another. He tells them not to pass judgment on one another and he concludes his argument this way. Listen to how he concludes his argument about judging one another. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For whether we live, we live to the Lord and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. And you know, that's a wonderful way to end. You are the Lord's. You are the Lord's. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, chosen by God and, and set aside his possess, as his possession to proclaim his excellencies. The 17th century uh, English minister named David Clarkson preached a soul-searching sermon about idolatry. And this is what he said about idolatry. Though few will own it, nothing is more common. If we think of our soul as a house, idols are set up in every room, in every faculty. And you think about it, that's absolutely true. We prefer our own wisdom to God's wisdom, don't we? We, we prefer our own desires to God's will. We prefer our own reputation to God's honor. And Clarkson, looking at human relationships, and, and he showed how that even, we even have a tendency to make human relationships more influential and important than God. 
even, even our enemies. We'll make them our gods. For he said this, when, when they are more troubled and disquieted and perplexed at possible danger to their liberty, property, and lives, then they are concerned about God's displeasure. Dear believer, we are called to show the excellencies of God. It's the greatest mission you could ever be involved in. It, it will outlast anything in this world, that mission to proclaim the excellencies of God. Are you proclaiming the, the excellencies of God by loving him with all of your heart, soul, and might? And are you proclaiming his excellencies by loving your neighbors, yourself? That is my prayer, that we will do that during this time and even beyond. Let's pray together. Lord, I wanna thank you for the mission that you've given us to do. What greater mission there is than to proclaim your excellencies. Lord, I, I, my request is that you will so focus our hearts on you and your greatness and your power and your wisdom and your might that uh, the, the trivial things of earth will fade away, that we will be in awe of your wisdom, that we will be in awe even of salvation, the, the basics, Lord, of, of how salvation comes about, that all we do is proclaim a message. Paul said it's foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. Lord, help us to be in awe of you. Help us to proclaim your excellencies, to be praying to you, to be reading your word, to be uh, removing idols from our hearts and help us to proclaim your excellencies, Lord, by loving our neighbors ourselves. Help us to, to think outside of ourselves, to call our neighbors, to call church members, to offer to help in any way that we can, to be prayerfully uh, mindful of what others are going through during this time. And Lord, help us not to judge. Help us that our bond of unity will grow greater because that unity is built around the gospel of Jesus Christ and not around our own opinion or our own desires. And Lord, may you be pleased with the way that we exalt you in Christ's name, amen.